I'm really impressed that you're all here in the rain. This is great. Thank you for braving the rain. And we put our little tent up just for you. And uh, this morning, after about, gosh, it's almost a month off, I wanted to get back to the series that we were working on before the holidays struck us. And that is The Fifth Way. The Fifth Way is my book, book I wrote. So forgive me if it seems a little narcissistic to go through this book here. But um, The Fifth Way really lays out a lot of the principles by which the effect kind of moves and, and uh, teaches and goes about the process of recovery. And so it seemed natural that the new, once the new edition came out to kind of go through the major principles uh, in the book because then we can kind of get grounded on what it is that we're looking at when we try to look at Jesus through modern Western eyeballs into an ancient Eastern context. We don't normally think of Jesus as as an Eastern man, but he was an intensely Eastern man in an ancient setting, speaking an Eastern language to Eastern listeners. And so if we're going to understand the record preserved for us in the New Testament, we're going to have to step back as much as we can into the sandals of those first followers. Because it is pretty much impossible for us to know Jesus' intent to try to step inside his mind. But what we can know with fairly good certainty is the effect, the meaning, the images that those words would have painted in the minds of his first listeners from that first century ancient Jewish perspective. And so that's what we're doing here at The Effect. For me, personally, discovering this Eastern Jesus was like meeting him for the first time. Even though I was raised Catholic, and at the time I was uh, studying and working in an evangelical church, to move into Christian oranges, to f- origins, to find the Hebrew roots of our faith changed everything for me. Because I found a Jesus who spoke without contradiction. And it seemed there was so much contradiction in the theology that I was taught in Catholicism and even in the evangelical churches. And everything pointed to the Father's love unambiguously, every single time. Every time there was a scripture passage that I didn't understand, a church practice that just seemed wrong, when I went back and looked at Jesus from this point of view, everything fell into place. Everything made common sense as well as perfect sense. And so this is the Jesus that we hope to introduce to all of you. We hope that you can meet this Jesus for the first time as well if you haven't already and see what he does to your life. He transformed mine. He's transformed millions. And we want to transform as many as we can. We want to put the power back in the gospel as much as we can. So in deciding to do this, though, I had a friend who, uh, after last week's message where we did the uh, parable of the sower, which is probably more aptly called the parable of the four soils. I like that better. Because that's really what it's about. It's these four different soils. You remember that parable? Okay, Jesus sows, and some of it falls on the beaten path, so it's the beaten soil, and then the rocky soil, and the thorny soil, and finally the good soil. All right? So we did that one last week, and then my friend said, it would be so great if you could do the next parable right after that, which is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I thought about that, and I thought, I really want to get back to the study, but then as I was preparing it, I realized the two really go together, so I'm going to try to do both. Let's see if I can pull that off. Um, Where we are in the book is a chapter called Heaven and Earth, or Between Heaven and Earth. And this is interesting because maybe what I should just do here, let me read you a couple of paragraphs 
um, of this chapter to see if we can start to get the idea of this concept, this Hebrew concept here. It begins, we are all connected and we are all alone. We are alone in our connectedness, in finding connection with each other. In this life, we're never fully alone and we're never fully connected either. We're never fully alone because there's a spirit of unity, Allaha, guiding us. And yet we're never fully connected as long as we're breathing inside of these individual and material bodies that keep us firmly entrenched in space and time and at arm's length from one another. We're never fully alone because our humanness makes certain experiences common to everyone. But we're never fully connected because our perceptions create unique filters that color each of those experiences uniquely. And the most important thing we can discover in our aloneness, the only thing worth having and the reason why we're here, connection, unity, oneness, cannot be transferred or transmitted to another. Frustrating, but so necessary. For only when the journey has been personally experienced is it really ours to keep, as with everything we find along the way. To be connected, to be in unity, means to have traveled alone to the doorstep of another and know the place for the first time. Now this was the hardest thing for me to accept as I started on this journey myself. That nobody could give me truth. Nobody could hand it to me. Nobody could give me peace. Nobody could give me the contentedness that I so yearned for and wasn't getting at that time. I had to experience it. I had to understand that understanding is an intellectual process. Somebody can give you that. You can sit in a classroom, you can read a book, and you can get understanding. But knowing is experiential. It can't be thought through. It has to be lived through. And because it's experiential, there is no way someone could give me what I was so desperately seeking. It can't be transferred. I think later today, we're going to go see The Wizard of Oz. They're going to put it on the big screen. And so, uh, y'all old enough to remember when it was only played once a year on television? (sighs) Every year, my sister and I, we'd get popcorn and we'd sit down and we'd watch our little black and white nine-inch screen. (laughs) But it was a treat to watch that thing every year. The most frustrating part about The Wizard of Oz for me was right at the end when she's ready to go home and Glinda the Good Witch says, you could have gone home anytime you wanted. I'm like, well, what did I spend the last two and a half hours for then? And and the uh, scarecrow says, you should have told her. He says, she had to find out for herself. See, that's the thing. She was wearing the ruby slippers the entire time she was in Oz. She could have gone home anytime she wanted but she didn't know how the slippers worked. She had to go through everything she went through just to get back to where she started and know the place for the first time. Know how the slippers worked. This is our lives. This is the spiritual journey. This is the hero's journey. This is the way of Jesus. They all connect. You can't just figure it out. You can't just read it. You have to live it out before you know how it works, and then everything starts to change at that point. We've got to sort through all the stuff that's in our lives. We need to sort through all the competing ideas, 
all the competing experiences and teachings and all the imperatives, all the laws, we have to experience, sort through, decide what's right, what's wrong, what works, what doesn't work. All that stuff is what we've got to do on our way to truth. Now, how do you know truth? There's a question, huh? How do you know when you have finally stumbled upon truth? Well, the easiest way for me and the way that has made most sense to me is to use Jesus as the gold standard. I look to him. Does my truth match with his truth? Does my truth allow me to look like, live like, relate like, love like? I see him doing all those things in the pages of the New Testament. If not, then I've got to keep looking. But if so, I've stumbled across something that is now truly mine. Have you ever had an idea and then someone comes out and markets it and makes a million dollars? That was my idea. I came up with that. You know, it was still your idea. You still arrived at it under your own steam, through your own experience. It's just as much your idea as their idea. They just got all the money because they had whatever they had at that moment. There's so many times that I think of something and I think it's an original thought. Now I realize if I ever think I have an original thought, I just haven't read enough. There's someone out there who's already thought this thing. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It's still my thought. And it's driven down deep into my spirit and I can use it. And and it changes things in terms of my attitude and the way I process because it's mine. I didn't get it secondhand. It wasn't hearsay. And this is what we're after. And so as you're sitting here right now and I'm up here speaking and saying all this stuff, the same thing applies. I can't give you truth. That changes anything in your life. I can tell you what I'm convinced of. And all I can tell you is go become convinced of what you're convinced of. My job is not to tell anyone what to think. That's mind control. It goes nowhere. It does nothing to change your inside, your interior life. Maybe you conform, you know, from the outside in, you conform to a certain way of thinking or acting but it's not changing anything inside until you take your own journey. My job is not to tell you what to think. My job is to help you get ready for the journey. Help you get ready to engage. Because when you engage, that's when your life starts to change. That's what we're after, this engagement, this changing. Now, this is, this is what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is talking about here. We did a, that study that... Um, Frank was just talking about last Wednesday night, and afterwards, one of the, uh, one of the uh, attendees comes up and says, I just got to tell you, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> and I said, good, that's great. I wish you had said that in the session so we could have talked about it. I respectfully disagree. You know what? If everybody agrees with me, as far as I know, I'm the only one doing any thinking. Let's, let's all think. Respectfully disagree. Respectfully is good. But you've got to think through this on your own. And you may not end up where I am, and that's totally fine. You just have to put your truth against that gold standard and see if it holds water. That's your business. That's your journey. And we may not see eye to eye, but that's fine, as long as we can stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, with each other, and live this life of kingdom that he has laid out for us. This is what we're trying to do. We're going to read another couple paragraphs and see if this takes us any further. The ancient Hebrews called this fact of life, everything we're talking about, heaven and earth, Shemaiah in Aramaic and Ara. 
Today's quantum physics calls it wave and particle. Heaven, the place of unity, of wave-like connection between everyone and everything, and earth, the place of particular individuality and form. Humans were understood to be occupying the space between heaven and earth, capable of both wave-like unity and particle-like form. Our job as humans is to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, to merge the two without losing the essence of either, to bring heaven to earth, to bring unity and connectedness to individual form and matter, to merge the particles into the wave, is another way of looking at Yeshua's way of entering the kingdom of heaven. And if Yeshua through you, or Yeshua, or Ishwa, as I just heard it should be pronounced, that's the Aramaic name of Jesus. This wave and particle, are you familiar with that? Light looks like a wave if you run it through certain experiments, and it looks like particles, photons, if you run it through different experiments. And this is what we're talking about here. Light is capable of both acting like a wave or a particle. Human beings are capable of acting like a wave, connected, seeing the connectedness of everything, living in that kind of flow, that stream, that ruha, which means wind and breath and spirit all at the same time, while retaining individual form. And as we do this, yes, we're not fully connected to each other, but we sense the connection. And so we're capable of both light, human beings. Think about what it means to be uh, created in God's image. To be created in God's image is to be capable of both. The unity of God, while in human form, in this individual form, capable of both. Jesus said that we have to be like a child in order to enter the kingdom. And the word he used in Aramaic was talia. Talia means two things at once, like most Aramaic words have multiple meanings. It means both child and it means servant, more particularly a bond slave, a domestic servant. And so when you think about the qualities of both, the child is in the flow. A child young enough doesn't know about past and future, can only conceive of now, processes everything now, Everything almost is an extension of him or herself, this child. That's the wave. That's the unity. The servant, the humility, the submission, but the volition, the choice to serve or not is the particle. Jesus says we need to be both of those. We need to be talia in order to be able to experience kingdom as he's experiencing it. This is that dual capability. This is that dual citizenship that we need to promote, we need to learn. This is the bilingual, if you will, attitude toward life that we have to start to take to get fluent in both of these as we move forth. Continuing, this way of Yeshua is all about unlearning and learning. And each is as important as the other. From whatever moment we embark, there is something to unlearn and something to learn in that order. Because no one comes to the table completely empty. And the worst place to start is the place from which we think we already have the answers. Yeshua's teachings can form the signpost and milestones of our journey, but they are only as good as our ability to let go of everything we think we know in favor of what really is. That's the unlearning. And some will have more to unlearn than others. To empty all that out, to stand naked again in the garden, is a very good place to start. The only place, really. For if we don't first become like those little children, we can't enter kingdom at all. We must empty out 
before we can fill up. We must unlearn, get rid of all the preconceptions and all the things we think we know to really allow something that is radically new and different into our lives. And we resist this, don't we? We want to learn only. (laughs) We want it all neat and tidy. We want neat, straight lines. We want to resolve everything. We want it to just tie up in a bow so that we think that we've got it and we can control it and now we've got a risk-free environment. But the most important things in life, the eternal things, they're not straight at all, are they? Think about life. Think about love. Think about relationship. Think about spirituality. They're not straight. They're all curved. You know? We, we get to them indirectly, not directly. They don't follow logical paths. Again, we have to experience and indirectly we start to glean something. Imagine you fell into a well and you want to get out. You're screaming and screaming at the top of your lungs. So let's, what do you want? You want a face to appear at the bottom of that little, at the top of that little circle and you want them to throw down a rope, a nice straight long rope and pull you out into the light, right? That's what you really want. So you're screaming at, your, at the bottom of your well and what happens? Instead of a rope, instead of a face, you get a shovel full of dirt dumped on your head. Ugh. How insulting. And you shake it off and you start screaming again. Another shovel full and another shovel full. After a while, though, if you keep shaking it off, you realize you're standing a few inches higher at the bottom of your well. And you start to realize how this thing really works. It's not a direct reaching down. It's not a straight line that takes you where you want to go. It's an indirect layering up. Think about your life. Think about the things that you've learned that really mean something. Isn't it that indirect layering up? Isn't that just that hard knock school and finally you realize you have changed, you have matured, you're able to handle things you couldn't handle before and you're not really sure when the change occurred, but it has occurred because you see the evidence of it. This is the way life works. This is the way the spiritual walk works. Spiritual formation. Jesus' way is exactly like this. This is how Jesus teaches. He teaches in a curved way. Ask Jesus a direct question. What do you get? (laughs) You get a question back, right? You get a story. You get a parable. He's not interested in answering your question because by virtue of you asking the question, you're telling him that you don't understand the way things work. So he has to break your line of thought, create the absolute non sequitur that'll just move your mind into a new space. It's not something that's solvable intellectually and he needs to prove that to you. And so that's what brings us back to parables. Parables work in curved, indirect ways. They create the questions. They create the non sequiturs. Matla in, in Aramaic, which means parable, also means riddle. And so there's a sense that the parable, while communicating truth, is also hiding things. It's, it's sequestering things. It's covering things over. Because what it's trying to do is break down your preconceptions. Just as much as trying to communicate a truth, it needs to get rid of anything that blocks your ability to accept that truth. And so it messes with your mind. That's what they're intended to do. But they're real-life stories. Now, they're not true stories necessarily, but they have a concrete setting, a concrete action, and a concrete result. And Jesus always pulls from the everyday life of the people around him. Not our everyday life, and so we have to go back and parse it and figure out what's going on here so we could understand it. But for them, it was everyday life. 
It's something that they could relate to. Now, last week we talked about the four soils. In first century Judea and the Galilee where Jesus was teaching, it was an agrarian society. Poor subsistence farmers working the hills, scratching out a living by planting what they could and reaping what they could. And so Jesus tells them a story that, of course, they're going to understand. The sower scatters the seeds and it falls on all these different soils. But what we had to make the distinction was is that because we have interpreted the parable as we have as a church for 2,000 years as being about different types of people and primarily between believers and unbelievers. Those unbelievers, those people who just don't get it, they're the first three types and we sitting here in the church who come here every Sunday, even in the rain, we're the good soil. Okay? We got it made. We're in. They're not. But to try to understand it from a Hebrew point of view, first of all, this isn't about heaven and hell. This isn't about the afterlife. Because the context of Jesus' teaching is always kingdom. And kingdom doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean a place. It doesn't mean the afterlife. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, most literally translated would be the reign of unity. It is the principles by which the Father, the King, reigns here and now. It's the quality of life that we can have right now when we are part of that flow, when our life looks like Talia, when we are merging particle and wave. That's kingdom right here, right now. And so the nowness, the immediacy of this parable, and because the Hebrews had this intense sense of an inner community, you know, all those different parts of yourself that talk to yourself and fight with yourself, you know, we talked about Paul, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, the things he doesn't want to do, those he does, all of that craziness, all that neurotic, that is the inner community. The idea was to bring the inner community into unity, get it to start speaking with one voice, and then connect it with the outer community and have that be one voice. The name Allaha, the name for God, means multiple things functioning as one. To live in God's image is to have all these things functioning as one. And so what we needed to realize was that this parable of four soils wasn't talking only about different types of people, although it certainly can. It was also talking about different parts of ourself, arriving at different rates to some sort of realization some parts of us resisting, other parts of us moving forward, and to realize that all of us have all four soils in us all the time. Takes the parable away from just an us and them kind of static, passive attitude to an active looking inward. What parts of me are still resisting this message? What parts of me are still blocking my ability to go where Jesus goes? And suddenly it becomes an integral part of our spiritual formation, an integral part of our way forward. This is what Jesus is about. This is what he's trying to get us to do. And it takes time. It takes time for that to layer up. It takes time for us to start to understand, to see these different parts of ourselves, to get aware enough in real time to make different decisions than some of our interior resistance would allow us to do. I'm hoping this is making sense. This distinction changes the whole nature of the way that we live life, the way that we approach things, from passive believer to active becoming believer. This idea of sanctification really takes the fore, and we keep tilling the soil in the parts that are not happening. So now there's this next parable, and I want to get to this one. And you can read along with me. Let's read 
Matthew 13, 24 to 30. This occurs right after Jesus gives the explanation of the parable of the four soils. And he just launches in. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay. So like the first parable, Jesus is giving us more imagery of farming and agrarian, more day-to-day imagery that the people can understand. But this is also what is known as a judgment parable. It's one of several that occur in Matthew. And so there's this idea of judgment here. Now, these two parables, the parable of the four so- soils and the parable of the tares and the wheat, are unique. There are, about, there are 40 parables, and that's an interesting number, 40. That number of initiation into a rebirth is what 40 means. 40 parables that are preserved for us in the New Testament. These are the only two that have explanations. Every one of the other ones, you've got to figure out for yourself. And so there's these, these two that we've got Jesus explaining because the disciples don't understand. Now, there are some scholars that believe that these explanations were later redactions. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but they're just saying they were added later by the church. Now, why would they say such a thing? Isn't that sort of blasphemy? Well, these scholars who are looking at the, at the text and, and, and in a literary form, you know, it's called higher criticism. They're looking at the text, they're looking for internal evidence, and they're trying to find these seams between the text, and they think they see some here. The main reason they would say that is because of style. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but there are similes and metaphors. I'm sure you heard of similes and metaphors. You know what a simile is? Her love is like a red, red rose. Okay? So it's comparing the attributes of two different things to try to get an image. But it's explicitly stated. There's always the word like or as. Now, in this case, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field. That is a simile. It's explicitly stated. This is like this. This isn't that. It's just like that. A metaphor is the same sort of idea, but it goes a step further. It doesn't use like or as. It substitutes one thing for another. Okay? Men are dogs. All right? We're not saying they're like dogs. Men are dogs. Now, we know men aren't dogs, but we know the behavior of dogs, and so we replace men with dogs, and that's a metaphor. That's the way it works. (laughs) A parable is understood usually as an extended simile. Jesus starts the parable with a simile. The kingdom of heaven is like, maybe compared to, and then he extends it with a story. Okay? But an allegory is an extended metaphor. Okay, so you take the, the, the metaphor, men or dogs. Now we're going to tell a story like an Aesop's fable about dogs. We're just going to talk about dogs and their behavior and all these things, but it's an allegory because if you know the code, if you know what you're supposed to substitute, then you know how men are as well. See how that works? 
Here's the interesting thing. Although the parable is an extended simile, the two explanations that Jesus gives are allegories. He doesn't say that this is like that. He tells you exactly what these things are. And so they see that stylistic mismatch and they're thinking, okay, maybe this was added later because Jesus spoke more plainly usually. Okay, the main thing that I want you to get from that little bit is not that I'm going off into blasphemy land here, but I want you to understand that both the parable and the explanation are both figurative in terms of their literary style. Okay, hang on to that. They're both figurative. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to say that all of this is canonical. All of this is original with Jesus, and we're going to we're going to um, proceed along those lines. All right. So first of all, we got in order to understand this parable, we need to know what a tear is. All right. What is a tear, and, and why did he use this? Well, the word tear was um, the 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 first Aramaic word. Uh, let's see if I can get this one and pronounce this one right. Zizana, zizana. I'm probably close to that. Um, probably meant one of the inedible strains of wild wheat that grew in the Galilee. Now, the, uh, the characteristic of this wild wheat was that it looked identical to actual wheat in its early stages of growth, but then as it got older, and certainly as the grain was, was being produced, then you could tell the difference. So initially they would look the same, but it would take some time before you could tell the difference. In 1611, the King James translators translated that word, zinzana, um, and the corresponding word in Greek, into tear. The word tear in English is a loan word from Middle French, which means um, the wastage in goods the thing that was rejected. And that comes from an Italian word that basically means the same thing. It's something that was rejected. It's something that was deducted. Now, we don't use tear in our language except one place. And those of you who have driven trucks know where that one place is or done any kind of shipping. Have you ever followed a big rig and you see that right on the back, tear, or sometimes tear weight? Yeah? You know what that is? The tear weight is the weight of the truck or the container when it's empty. You need to know that. Because once you fill it up and you put it on a scale, you deduct the tear weight and then you know what the weight of the contents are. It's the same idea. The tear is the thing that's deducted. It's the wastage. It's the thing that doesn't count. And so you can see why the translators of the King James Version used that word because that's exactly what this was. This was the thing that was going to be deducted. That didn't really have anything to do with the wheat itself or the, or the weed itself, but it was really getting to the essence of how this thing functioned. I, I just think that's fascinating. I love that. So the false grain and the good grain are going to be allowed to grow together side by side, and the disciples don't understand, so Jesus patiently explains, starting at Matthew 13:36. And then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Metaphor. See that? And the field is the word, word, world. Metaphor. For the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up, and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and throw them into the furnace of fire. 
And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, that's pretty tough. A lot of fire and stuff going on there. Here's what I want you to remember. This is an allegorical. This is an allegory. They're going to be thrown into a furnace of fire. Does that mean there's going to be actual flames? Not necessarily. I mean, I don't know. How could I possibly? But I know that this is an allegorical formulation. So just like men are dogs doesn't mean men really have four feet. You know, it means they act like they have four feet. There's going to be some unpleasantness. There's going to be some kind of pain. Not being in God's presence that is like a furnace of fire. That's the, the intent of what's trying to get across here. And here's the other thing from last week, what we talked about and we made a big deal of. Hebrew has many idiomatic formulations. And an idiom, if you don't know, is a phrase that is agreed upon in terms of the understanding of the culture. But you can't deduce the meaning from the sum of the definitions of the words. And one idiomatic style that the Hebrews had was to show a result or a consequence as a purpose. All right? We talked about that. Many are called, but few are chosen. That doesn't mean that God isn't choosing all the people who don't get chosen. It means they don't choose to be chosen. All right? Here, who is doing the throwing into that furnace of fire? See, the, the consequence, the result is being shown as a purpose. But it's not God who's doing the throwing. It's our choice. We have a choice. If we don't choose to be part of the kingdom, then we choose to be outside in the outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's the sense of this. And so we have to be careful because if we're trying to trust this Father, if we're going to believe in the good news of Jesus, then phrases like this, unless we understand the idioms, can be stumbling blocks, can be difficult for us. Now the other thing about this explanation is that it all sounds like it's in the future. It's all about being on the right side of things when the music stops, right? It's about backing the right horse. If we do that, then at the end of things, everything is going to work out. And so right now, we're in waiting mode, passively waiting. We've, we've found our faith. We're in the church. We've said our creed and been baptized. And now we wait for the end of all things and this judgment seat. The thing that we have to remember so vividly, is that parables are a call to action. There's always action involved. They are not passive. Every parable that Jesus tells us is showing us a type of action that if we take that action, we will learn something about kingdom. Because all the parables are talking about kingdom, ultimately. I wanted to read you a couple of paragraphs from a book that's a commentary on the parables and see if this helps bring this into focus for you. Um, this particular author is talking about uh, John Dominic Croissant, who is a, a biblical scholar. And he says, Croissant stresses that parable as poetic metaphor creates participation in the metaphor's referent, uh, scholar speak, <sighs> creates participation because one can only experience its reality by risking entrance into it. Let me read that again. He stresses that the parable creates participation because one can only experience its reality by risking entrance into it. Ah, I love the way that is stated. 
He then argues that not only do the parables of Jesus reflect the temporality, that is the here nowness, the temporality, the nowness, the hereness of Jesus' experience of God, and establish the historicity of Jesus' response to the kingdom, they create and establish the historical situation of Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus was not crucified for speaking parables, but for ways of acting that resulted from the experience of God presented in the parables. Right? The threat wasn't the words. The threat was the way he lived. The radically free way that he lived that took out the need for any middleman, connected the people directly to their God so that it was simultaneously destroying the power base of all the powers that be. They couldn't handle that. It was his action that created the reaction. These poetic metaphors, Croissant asserts, portray a permanent eschatology. There's something, huh? I've never heard. A permanent eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the end times and end things. A permanent eschatology. A here-now eschatology. The continuous presence of God as the one who challenges the world and repeatedly shatters its complacency. This kingdom of God and its parables manifest an advent of a radical new world of possibility a reversal of ordinary expectations and the past, and a call to action as an expression of the new world with new possibilities. See, the parables must be lived to be understood. You can't just hear them. You can't just read them. You have to live them. I remember, gosh, when I was just starting my study as a pastor, 15, 18 years ago, I remember some other pastor, I can't even remember who it was, saying that nobody should preach the parables until you've been preaching for at least 20 years. I thought, oh, that's just some old guy trying to keep his job. (laughs) At the time. Now, I haven't been quite preaching 20 years yet, so I'm already breaking the rule, but I take his point. You know, there's a certain amount of living that you just have to do to start to understand these things. Raw, out of school, yeah, you can parse this thing and you can read all the commentaries, but you're not going to be able to really understand what Jesus is driving at until you've walked away. Live this thing. That's the way this works. You've got to answer the call to action. If you just read the thing, if you just parse it, if you just intellectually understand. Placing all this in the future creates this complacency, this passivity. And it's not going to take us where we want to go because all of Jesus' context is kingdom. And kingdom, as we just said, is absolutely here and now. The kingdom of heaven is like, he says. And he tells us this story. The context is here. The context is now. The context is interior to exterior because kingdom always moves from inside to outside and never the other way around. Luke 17, it's not out there, he says. The kingdom won't be found by observation. Not here it is or there it is. The kingdom is entos. The kingdom is legaumen in Aramaic. That means among, within, in the midst of, all at the same time and moving dynamically from inside to outside in the Aramaic. This is kingdom. And so we need to understand this is the context. So, what is it that Jesus is calling us to do? If it's not all in the future, what is the call? I think there are three of them. And the first call is don't judge others. 
He's already told us that in Matthew 7. He's reiterating it here now. Take a look at this. If you think of the wheat and the tares as two different types of people, then who are we as the servants of the landowner to go out and pull the ones that we think are weeds? How do we know that they're weeds? Are we spending all our time judging another person's character, judging another person's actions, judging them in relationship to what? To our religiosity, our level of spiritual advancement? This is precisely what Jesus tells us not to do because it creates an us and them. It creates disunity, disharmony. It takes us right out of the kingdom. We're no longer Talia. I wanted to read you just a little bit. I found this little gem in a sermon from a Baptist church, no less, Frank. But I thought this was really cool. And he was teaching on the same parable, and he writes, I guess he wrote it, I'm recalling a teenager who was pretty rambunctious, didn't listen to his mother, made fun of her. He moved in with a girl as a teenager and got her pregnant. I'm sure MTV influenced him to do this. Must must be old. You know, uh, all those reality shows. After living with this girl for 15 years, he dumped her and moved in with another. He became engaged to the second woman, thinking it would advance his career. The engagement was a long one, two years, and during the engagement, he hooked up with a third woman. In the midst of all this licentiousness, he left the church that he was brought up in with his mother and joined a cult. Eventually, he became bored with the cult and he became a skeptic. What do we do with someone like him? Is he wheat or weed? Is there any hope for a rascal like that? (laughs) Well, his name was Augustine of Hippo, who would later be called St. Augustine, one of the most important theologians and church leaders of the first 500 years of church history. His confessions may be the most profound and important spiritual biography ever penned. Augustine was a wheat who resembled and acted more like a weed (laughs) in his early years, So one reason we don't pluck up the weeds is that we can't tell them apart so easily. You know? We're not supposed to judge. That's not our job. But we want the garden neat, don't we? We want all the rows neat. We want all the weeds pulled. We want everything just so because it gives us this illusion of control, this illusion of a risk-free passage through life. But there is no resolution between heaven and earth. Here on this earth, the way we live our lives, life doesn't resolve. It doesn't end like a sitcom after 30 minutes or a drama after 60 with a nice bow and neatly tied up, all the threads pulled together. When does life ever do that? Anytime it seems to, it's just the start of the next round of chaos and craziness. That's the way we experience life. It's curved, like the parables. We can't possibly know who is weed and 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 who is wheat until the end of all things. Because we're all becoming. We're all somewhere on our trajectory. And it's not our job. If we do our job between heaven and earth, which is to simply merge heaven and earth, bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, to merge unity with our individuality and our individual perceptions, not lose either one, but connect them all. In other words, to love and not to judge. Then God will do his. We know God will do his. And so we've got no worries for the future. Whatever the future holds, whatever this parable is telling us about the end of things, if we focus here and now, we can enter with all trust and all blessed assurance into whatever follows. And this is the way of the Hebrew. Focus here. God's domain is the next life. Let him take care of his job. We take care of ours. Now what's this second call? Well, 
If the word there translated as devil here from the Greek diabolos is really satana in, in Aramaic, satana means literally adversary. It means that's that which in our lives causes us to, to, to turn aside or to turn astray. It doesn't necessarily mean a being or a spiritual being. It's anything in our way. So what is this second call? And I'm not saying there is no Satan, you know, no letters to the Chancery Office, please. I'm not, that's not where I'm going. I'm saying it has a dual meaning. What you find in Aramaic, there are always layers of meaning. We had a first call, which is not to judge the people around us. This second call now is to move from micro, micro relationships, to the macro and say, hey, that adversary can also be everything that challenges me, every temptation, every trial, everything that goes wrong. From the things that are happening in Washington or Paris or anywhere else in the world and the things that are happening in my home, my church, my work. We're getting back to James 1 here, aren't we? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations because in the endurance of moving through these things is where we find our completion, our maturity. So the second call is to start looking at these adversaries looking at the weeds in our life, the tears in our life, as opportunities for growth. Now, maybe we're not going to see them with total joy, but we see them as something that simply needs to be moved through. Whatever we feel about them, we lean in and we move through. Instead of running from them, numbing ourselves over them, or going sideways so that we never connect in the moment. Because the only way through these difficulties is to connect with God here and now. And what is this third call? Well, if it's true that we have all four soils within, and it's certainly true that the Hebrews, the ones who wrote these scriptures, were very concerned with the interior community as well as the exterior community, then we have to understand that there are tares and wheat inside of each one of us as well. We need to look inside. We need to be aware. We need to see what it is that is still imperfect, still holding us back. But here's the important thing. We need to learn to live our lives accepting our imperfections without the shame that is the fear of disconnection that keeps us from connecting with each other and with God. How much guilt do we carry around? How much shame do we carry around? How much does that debilitate our, our relationships? All of them, whether they're human relationships or a relationship with the Spirit of God. We don't feel worthy anymore because of this shame, this guilt we carry around. We need to lose our perfectionism that is telling us we have to fix everything, that we have to be perfect before we can be in relationship, before we can present ourselves to our God. Nothing can be further from the truth. We've got the wheat and the tares in us. The Landover says, let them grow. You know, there are certain things that are still maybe immature in your life, that still may be not completely formed, but you know what they're doing? They're holding the soil together. They're not letting the rain come and wash it all away. Until you have something to replace that with, maybe you're not supposed to get rid of that yet. I don't know what that is. And don't take that to mean that you can go out and do all sorts of crazy stuff in there because Dave said it's okay. It's holding your soil in place. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is instead of focusing on everything that you want to take out, all the weeds you want to pull, how about focusing on continuing to grow and put energy and nutrients into the wheat in your life that will displace all the tares in your life. In other words, ignore them. Let them atrophy. Let them die naturally. 
rather than focusing all your energy on the negative part of your life. That's the third call. Do you see where Jesus is going with all of this? The parables are like life between heaven and earth because they approach life in exactly the same way. This indirect living through that must be experienced. And when we start to live the call of the parables, in this particular case, to stop judging, to stop trying to pull other people's weeds, to allow that the difficulties in our life are ultimately our friends, ultimately those things that are here right now to help us to grow, to help us to accomplish one more thing that gets us to the other side with skills and assets and strengths that we didn't even know were within, and then to accept our imperfection and realize that we're already worthy of connection with our God and with everyone else. If we can start doing that, we will realize that we too have always been wearing our ruby slippers and we can click our heels three times anytime we want and go home and home is right here, right now in our own backyard knowing the place for the first time and realizing that God was always here always present, and never will be anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful. Grateful for this moment. Grateful for this morning. Grateful that we have these treasures, these scriptures, these words preserved for thousands of years that can guide us that can give us a window into your heart. Thank you for all the men and women who have worked and spent entire lifetimes studying, working to give us these insights, to help us to understand what it is that you have for us. But even apart from Scripture, Lord, help us to realize that we just need to lean in and live our lives every day, every detail, every moment with you in mind, with the connection that you imply, this unseen connection between everyone and everything. Help us to experience that. Help us to know that so that the scriptures come alive. I pray that they work together in our lives to produce this new transformed person that this year we want all to be, to become more and more your image, your likeness. Father, we want to be a a living simile (laughs) of your face and your will. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Let's all stand.